Morning Crosswalk, welcome. Happy Sabbath. Thanks for being here. We are in our second week of our Christian question mark series. And I like the second week of a series because you begin to lean into it just a little bit more. As you know, last week we asked the question that matters, right? The one question that matters, which is who do you say that I am? Today we're going to talk about the term, the word Christian, where it came from, why it matters, and what we have done with it. So first we ask the question like this, what's in a name? I mean, few words carry as much baggage as this word Christian. It's a loaded label. It brings about, well, it brings about a lot of different things, right? It brings about joy. It brings about pain. It brings about anger in some. It brings about hope in others. And I don't know what your relationship with this word is, but statistically, many of you struggle. I should say many of us struggle with this idea of Christianity or this term Christianity. We have to recognize this. Jesus never used the term. He didn't. I mean, it would be akin to calling people who went to crosswalk Timians. And that's weird, right? First of all, nobody wants to be called Timmy. And those of you in my life who still call me Timmy, not interested. I've never liked it. I didn't like it when I was eight years old. I don't like it now. And there is a certain group of girls that lived on my street that were all in the grade ahead of me, and they still call me Timmy. You know who you are if you're watching. I don't like it. I never have. It's weird. But Jesus wouldn't have used that. He wouldn't have said, hey, call yourself me. Jesus used a different word to talk about those who followed him, those who believed him and who believed in his mission and his calling and his, his position as the son of God. He used the word hagias, right? Which means saints. Saints, those consecrated to God, holy and sacred. And, it, and just so you know, and I love this, it is almost always used in the plural. We don't talk about a saint, we talk about saints. This reflects not just the individual, but the connections to a group of people set apart for God and set apart for his kingdom. Hagios, saints. I mean, the truth is names matter, right? Beginning with Adam naming the animals, the creation of a new name or title is important. Names matter. Your name matters. I mean, I remember I was playing basketball. We used to go to this one school, and I did it all four years when I was in high school. We, we, would, we would go to this one, and for some reason, and it was, I think it was brilliant. It was a stroke of genius. There was this one person at this particular school who knew our names on the team. And it wasn't so that, you know, he could, or I think it was a he, could encourage us. It was so that he could distract us because I would get the ball. Someone would pass me the ball when we're playing basketball and we'd go, Tim, don't screw it up. Tim, don't mess it up. And all of a sudden I'm getting confused because who's calling my name? Who is it that knows me? It was super distracting. Our names matter. They mean something to us. They are intimate to us. How about this? Did you ever try to pick your own nickname? I mean, many of us had nicknames growing up. I called my sister Sis because I couldn't say Shannon. But have you ever tried to pick your own nickname? Because I guarantee you, if you try to pick your own nickname, your friends are going to find a different nickname, much more disparaging, to call you all the time. So we got to ask the question, where did this new name come from, this term Christian? And what's interesting is that we first see it used by the powers that be in 
the town of Antioch, really the city, the metropolis of Antioch. Because it wasn't a name that they gave themselves. And, and we should probably ask the question, why not just Jews? Well, like, what was different about these people? So let's let the Scripture speak. That's always the best way to answer the questions that we have about these sorts of things. We'll be looking at Acts of the Apostles, chapter 11, verses 19 through about 26. So we're reading from the New Living Translation. We'd love you to join along. It begins like this. Meanwhile, the believers who had been scattered during the persecution after Stephen's death traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch of Syria. They preached the word of God, but only to Jews. Now, so what happened is you've, you've got this persecution with the person of Stephen. And we all know the story of the stoning of Stephen. If you don't, go back a few verses, a few chapters in, um, in Acts of the Apostles so you can remember that story, which, by the way, is where we see Paul show up for the first time as he was standing there holding a cloak. Now, after that, they stopped preaching so much in Jerusalem. And there was this diaspora, right? Diaspora of the Christians. We know that there was a diaspora or dispersion of the Jews after 89 AD and the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. This is a bit before that. And there has been this diaspora of Christians. Remember, Pentecost happened during Passover. So there was this swelling of people in the midst of Jerusalem and then they were preaching, they were preaching. Stephen, and my timeline is a little truncated here. I apologize for that. But I'm trying to give you the, the landscape of the story. So after the stoning of Stephen, Christians knew maybe this is not a safe. And so there was this diaspora. And they went, as you see, very far, Phoenicia, Cyprus, even to Antioch of Syria. But when they got there, they weren't just quiet. They preached the word of God. Even though evangelism had essentially stopped in Jerusalem, they began to preach the word of God but only to Jews, right? So they, they, they were trying to keep safe. However, the scripture continues, some of the believers who went to Antioch from Cyprus and Cyrene began preaching to the Gentiles about the Lord Jesus. So they didn't stay within their community. They actually went outside of their community and they began to speak. And now this is the thing. Antioch is a big city. In fact, in ancient times, they used to say all the world in one city when it came to Antioch. And the marketplace, as the, as the whole city was built, the marketplace was the hub of all life. And what's interesting is that, of course, you have different people groups that are living in different parts of the city all coming to the marketplace. And the city was actually kind of divided by race. Because there were so many people, they were divided by race. Now, we see this. In fact, in, in the city of Jerusalem, in the ancient city of Jerusalem today, you still have, you know, the Armenian quarter and you have the Arab quarter and you have the Jewish quarter. You've got these different areas where people are. Same thing in, in ancient cities as well. Antioch was no different. But for some reason, reason, as they began to preach to the Gentiles about the Lord Jesus, as Christians came and preached, they began to break down those dividing barriers and one of the reasons that the gospel was and is so powerful is that it gave and gives people a new identity in Christ. Even your ethnic origin does not matter in the same way when you accept who Jesus Christ is and you accept his supremacy in your life. I mean, where does your identity lie? And in Antioch, in Antioch, follower of Christ became the label. 
But I wonder, were they that different from us? I mean, people have really strong national identities, ethnic identities, family identities. It's, it's okay. We do that, and we're proud of where we come from. There's nothing wrong with that. I don't want to diminish that, but at the same time, as you become familiar with the gospel and as you become an heir to the kingdom, as Scripture says, we begin to change our identity. And I know that's very difficult for some of us, but they were redefining community in a radical and unprecedented way. We've used that term a lot over the last year, but this is for 2,000 years ago, in a radical and unprecedented way. So much so that a new word was needed to categorize what was happening, okay? Are you with me on that? When something is so new that you have to come up with a word for it, it's new and it's powerful and chances are it has some stick to It has some staying power. Remember, remember, some of you will, some of you won't, but I remember when the internet was becoming a thing and, and people would say the, the intraweb, or the interweb, and I was like, oh, what's, and then some people would say the World Wide Web, and we would say that all the time, are you on the World Wide Web, which, which sounds kind of grandiose. Eventually, we got to this term internet, which we didn't really necessarily have before, at least not in layman's terms, not in the vernacular of the people, if you will, and then all of a sudden, it became a word we say how often, how many times a day do you say the internet? How many times, I mean, I remember when email became a word, when things change so significantly that you have to come up with a brand new nomenclature for it, a new word for it, you know it's a powerful thing. And in fact, Scripture says it this way, the power of the Lord was with them. And a large number of these Gentiles believed and turned to the Lord. And I, you know, a new identity is amazing. A new identity is attractive. It's exciting. And a new identity is needed. But when a revival happens, people struggle. And the early church was no different. Any organization, when something new begins to happen, in fact, something so new that you need to have new words, all of a sudden you're like, are you with us anymore or are you with them? Who, who are you with? So when the church, and this is continuing on, verse 22, when the church at Jerusalem heard what had happened, they sent Barnabas to Antioch, right? Go check these guys out. Go see what's happening. A couple things are happening. Number one, that church is growing, and we're not really doing that right now, and our church here in Jerusalem is not really growing in the same fashion. Number two, they're calling them something different. They're not calling them Jews anymore. They're calling them this followers of Christ, which was really Christians. See, they were just, they were just followers of the way. That was kind of it. They were, they were the way. And now they're getting this term, this label, this nomenclature that's coming to them, and it's changing their identity a little bit more, and it's separating them a little bit from, from what was traditional, which was the Jewish tradition. So things are going well in the outpost, and so we got to send somebody from headquarters to see what's really going on, and so they send Barnabas. Now listen, you got to understand, revival is often shunned by the establishment. I've seen it before, and I'll see it again. I've been blessed to be involved in revival movements within the Seventh-day Adventist Church over the last 25 years. And I got to tell you, as a church grows, people can't believe it is really the blessing of God. And so people come and say, now what's really happening? What are you really saying? What are you really telling people? In my time in another organization, the one project is we were, as we were, you know, reaching people with Jesus, people would come and say, listen, I, we're, not, we're not sure what's really happening here. And we're like, oh, we're talking about Jesus. And they're like, yeah, but what's, what are you really selling? What's really happening? Because when revival comes, people are not ready for it, even if they've been praying for it. 
They're never ready for it because revival rarely looks the way you think it's going to look because the Holy Spirit's not bound by your opinions. The Holy Spirit's not bound by your rules. The Holy Spirit's going to move where the Holy Spirit wants to move. And if it's revival that doesn't look like the revival that you want, that's not really up to you anymore. And I thank God they sent Barnabas because when he arrived and saw the evidence of God's blessing, he was filled with joy and he encouraged the believers to stay true to the Lord. He's like, yeah, what's going on here is great. Make sure you're preaching the gospel. Barnabas was a good man who could see the blessing of God and encourage him. And in fact, scripture actually says that. Barnabas was a good man in verse 24, full of the Holy Spirit and strong in faith. See, because when you're full of the Holy Spirit and when you're strong in faith, you know that when the Holy Spirit gives you a left turn, it's okay. It doesn't destroy everything because your identity is still in Christ. And even though things don't look the way or sound the way or act the way that you thought they were going to, or they're reaching a group of people that you had not planned on reaching, it doesn't matter. Because if you're strong in the Holy Spirit, if you're strong in faith, then you know that's where God is leading because you can recognize the blessing of the Holy Spirit. So God continued the blessing. Many people were brought to the Lord, it says in verse 24. But Barnabas knew there's something happening here. And because there's so much happening here, he needed a leader. And so he goes to Tarsus to look for Saul, who we know as Paul. He knew the church at Antioch could use some help, but not from the establishment. Barnabas actually goes a little rogue and goes and gets Saul. And he says, brother, you got to come. you got to see what's happening here. You're built for this. These are the kind of people that you're going to recognize. These are the kind of people that you're going to identify with. These are the kind of people who they're coming up with a new name to talk about them because they're so on fire. And so when he finds him, he brought him back to Antioch. Both of them stayed in the church for a full year. I love the way the scripture says that. For a full year. They weren't going anywhere. Teaching large crowds of people. And then in this parenthetical statement that we see in verse 26, it says, it was at Antioch that the believers were first called Christians. A few things going on here. First, we see good friendship between Barnabas and Saul. That's awesome. The second thing that we see is good ministry. They stayed, they invested in the community. They allowed it to mature. They allowed it to grow. And then we see this word come up. It was in Antioch that the believers were first called Christians. Christians? Well, it sort of means little Christs. And C.S. Lewis seized on this. Now, I'm not one who reads long quotes, so bear with me here because C.S. Lewis talks about this and I think it's important. C.S. Lewis says, now, the whole offer which Christianity makes is this. That we can, if we let God have his way, come to share in the life of Christ. If we do, we shall then be sharing a life which was begotten, not made. Which always existed and always will exist. Christ is the Son of God. If we share in this kind of life, we shall be sons of God. We shall love the Father as he does. And the Holy Ghost will arise in us. He came to this world and became a man in order to spread to other men the kind of life he has by what I call good infection. Every Christian is to become a little Christ. 
The whole purpose of beginning, the whole purpose of becoming a Christian is simply nothing else. So we got to take that for a moment. We got to take that seriously for a moment. What if you were? What if I was? What if we were little Christs to the world? What would your life look like? And I got to tell you, we don't like this. We don't like to even think about this for a couple of reasons. Number one, we're like, no, 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 no. I could never be like Christ, right? And I get that. I, I understand the humility of that, but God, Christ calls us to come and follow him, to come and be like him. So I'm not assuming that power of Christ but if you muse, muse with me just a little bit, we can ask this question. When someone sees you, do they see Jesus? And if you're not sure, simply ask yourself this question. Who is drawn to you? Or the converse is true too. Who is repelled by you? Because it comes down to who you're representing. Those who are looking for righteousness, those who are looking for holiness, those who are looking for salvation, they will be drawn to you as they see Christ in you. Those who are not looking for those things, those who are looking for divisiveness, those who are looking for derision, those who are looking for, for, for less than holiness. If those are the ones that are attracted to you, you've got to ask yourself, who are you representing? In Antioch, Everyone came to the Christians. And in fact, they came to them and they said, you're not like the, the other Jews that we're seeing. We're seeing you as something different. And so we're going to give you a different name. We're going to give you a different title. We're going to give you a different position. Is the same true for us? How is Christ seen in you? Because if he's not seen in you, you don't get the label. You don't get the title. You may belong to the group, but you don't represent it well. You are a bad brand ambassador, and our brand is Christ Jesus. Simply and clearly, no one else. Nothing else. And so I got to tell you, we do damage to the word of God. We do damage to the name of God by calling ourselves Christian and then acting less than Christ-like. How are you going to love? Or does your love stop at your front door? Does it stop at the door of the church as you walk out of it? Because if it does, you don't get the label. You may get it while you're in the house, but you don't get it when you're outside. If, if we're not careful, we who call ourselves Christians might do more damage to the name of God than those who don't. If you want to represent Christ, if you want to wear that uniform, you want to put on that label You've got to take it seriously. And I will just call it out right now, friends, what I've seen over the last few years is people naming themselves Christians and then forgetting to act like Christ. 
being willing to engage in any kind of rhetoric online or in person, thinking that they are doing righteous things while at the same time their processes of, of, of achieving that righteousness are dirty and ugly and nasty. And if that's the case, you can't call yourself a Christian. You can call yourself easily offended. You can call yourself part of one political party or another and you decide what that is. That's not up to me, but I can tell you this. If you're going to name the claim Christian, you serve a higher purpose, you serve a higher power, and you are called to a higher responsibility. If you don't like that, it's okay. You don't have to take the name. Because I can guarantee you, no one's giving it to you. And maybe this is a hard word. Maybe you don't like your pastor talking like that, and I get it. I get it. I don't like a hard word. I don't like to misrepresent the brands that I like. And I don't like to fall short of what God is expecting of me. But at some point, I got to take responsibility for what I claim to be. And the beauty is this. The beauty is this. The Holy Spirit is with you the whole time to lead you in to a greater righteousness of Christ, to help you understand and mature in your faith so that you're not so easily offended and you're not so angry all the time. The only person who gets to have righteous anger is God. What you get to do is try and reunite people who have been broken. That's our call. That's what we're supposed to do. We should love so much that, that people need a new name for us. If we've done damage to this name Christian, we should, we should go away, put away with it, do away with it. <laughs> And, and love the world in such a way that they have to come up with another name. Because it's so new, it's so fresh, it's so spirit-filled that all of a sudden we've, we, don't, we don't know what to call you people anymore because it's, we've never seen anything like you. Can you imagine the power of that? That's Christianity. And that's first century. One one place of separation from Jesus kind of faith. Listen, we want to be biblical Christians. We want to be people that follow the Word of God. We want to be people that follow the Word who is God. Then it's time for us to reevaluate the way we carry the brand, the way we carry the label. And in all humility, I want you to know that I pray for this. I pray to be a representative of God that is worthy of the grace that God has given me. Maybe I'll never get there. Maybe we'll never get there. But we can work harder and we can seek more grace and we can love more generously. And if we are not drawing people to Christ through the way we are, then we have to ask who we're really representing and what title we get to carry. Maybe it's a hard word, but maybe that's the word we need. Let's pray together. God, I am so glad you are a God of grace. I fall short. We fall short. But Lord, may our intentions be clear. May our intentions be pure. May we seek you first and seek you only and let the rest of our lives be an overflow of that focus on you. 
Lord, may we mature in our faith. Lord, thank you for not asking us to be perfect, but asking us to robe ourselves in your righteousness. Remind us when the robe slips. And Lord, convict the hearts of those who have no interest in living your life, but love the name. Lord, let them put it aside. It's a burden for them to carry. And it's a scar on, on those who want to express who you are in the world. But Lord, more than that, inspire us, invigorate us, motivate us to be your brand ambassadors on this earth in a great and powerful way. Lord, may they come up with a new name for who we are because we've learned to love so well. Pray this in your holy name, in the name of Jesus. Amen.